You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So the same Welcome to episode 314 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host today. My name is Michael Farmer. Joining me today is David Grubbs, who is a assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. How's it going, David? Pretty good. Um, pretty uh, ni- a nice drizzly day in 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 the 60s, which. Uh, Usually in Houston, everyone would be complaining about, but today everyone I've met has been saying variations on a theme of "What a nice day we're having." It was it, it was uh, almost eighty here yesterday, and tomorrow it's going to be fifty is the high. So it's uh, that weird time of year in the American South. Uh, I suspect temperatures aren't fluctuating quite as drastically in Swan River, Manitoba, where our uh, where our third panelist Matthew Block is. It is Manitoba, right? It's not Saskatchewan? Did I mess that up? No, no, you're right. It's Manitoba. Uh, I'm from Saskatchewan, though, and I'm pretty near the border, so I I wouldn't be offended either way. Um, No, the temperature is actually quite nice here. It's about minus 12 Celsius, which is, I think, about 10 degrees Fahrenheit, I have to think, (laughs) above. So that's quite balmy for us, so I'm I'm pretty pleased with it. I know know what you mean. Before we get to the topic at hand, what's new in the network? Usually I'm the one who answers that question, so now I'm asking you and answering it. And also, it's stuff that I put on the calendar for the most part. Um, oh, man, this is this is the test, and I'm failing it. I'm failing abysmally. So we did have a new Before it. They Were Live uh, last Thursday <laughs> on Fantasia 2000. And then oh, there was a Christian feminist podcast about the revelations of Julian of Norwich starring my wife, Victoria Reynolds Farmer, and David's wife, Katie Norman Grubbs, and uh, and Christina Bieber Lake. Many, uh, many just... three named Christian women academics. Yes. Uh, who isn't our, our wife, but is someone's wife. True. Stephen Lake's wife. Yeah, ex- exactly. Also, um, I assume there was a sectarian review at some point, but because uh, there always is, there always is, but that wasn't put on the calendar. Cool. So those other things are available if uh, if anybody wants to listen to them, and you should. I'm excited about your Fantasia 2000 because I, I really enjoyed the first Fantasia episode, and I've been kind of waiting for this one. Well, uh, I think it's a pretty good episode. Josh reveals his. Uh, this this like secret desire he has for the podcast that is I, I think really wonderfully weird. Um, so you you have that to look forward to. Awesome. It's called called a teaser. I don't want to give anything away so that people have a reason to listen. <laughs> well, uh, what we're talking about today is Pope Leo the Thirteenth's eighteen ninety one encyclical Rerum Novarum. 
And that title, like all uh, the titles of all encyclicals, comes from the opening words. And, and in this case, those opening words in Latin are of the new things. David, what sorts of new things was Pope Leo interested in in 1891? Well, very helpfully, uh, he actually starts naming some specifics right off the bat. The the new things in particular are the spirit um, the spirit of revolutionary change that's uh, abroad in the world. Um, in particular, you know, just some things that he names: uh, the vast expansion of industrial pursuits, the marvelous discoveries of science, changed relations between works uh, masters and workmen. Um, Enormous fortunes of some few individuals, utter poverty of the masses, uh, closer mutual com uh, combination of working classes, and moral degeneracy. So, working through those things, um, in industrial pursuits and science, uh, 1891 is uh, s sort of the in in the height of of what was known as the second industrial revolution beginning in the 1860s, 1870s thereabouts. Um, there was another industrial revolution and, you know, there there's, you know, things that could be said about that. The first industrial revolution, the second one had to do with, Oh golly, th uh, revolutions in the making of uh, production of iron and steel in, um, the ability to mass produce parts for things, um, particularly uh, kind of factory components and stuff like that, so that um, it's not just mass production coming out of a factory, it's even mass production of factories. Um, so, so all sorts of stuff is happening there. Um, the expansion of railway, um, telegraph has given way to telephone, um, there are electric lights and airships, and everybody is trying to get a submarine first, and skyscrapers, and an Eiffel Tower, and all sorts of stuff. Um, a lot of the things that we that that come to define, you know, the modern world as we know it, are are coming to uh, sort of coming to the fore, being invented, uh, or coming to prominence in in the decades before this encyclical. Is written, um, including um, the use of fossil fuels uh, and the internal combustion engine, um, which would eventually displace steam and so forth. Right. So that stuff is going on. Uh, change relations between master and workman um, beginning in the middle of the 19th century, especially the last quarter of the 19th century. Um, the labor movement is growing internationally. Um, major um, major labor organization um, in the United States and in uh, the United Kingdom, um, some of it uh, resulting in um, uh, violent altercations between um, representatives of the organized labor and uh, the uh, business owners, but also between organized labor and the government. Um, enormous fortunes uh, counteracted or counterbalanced by utter poverty. Well, I don't know what they call it in the UK, but in uh, the United States, they were calling this the Gilded Age. And so, right. you know, 
some of the big names that you know, um, like like Rockefeller and uh, Vanderbilt, um, are dominating this particular period. Uh, and prevailing moral degeneracy, well, I, I can't think of any era of time in which there's not someone decrying the prevailing moral degeneracy. Um, but there was, you know, working at this time in Western Europe, a, you know, a school of artists who actually called themselves the decadents. So I don't know. Uh, any, what, what stuff am I, uh, am I missing that you think is pretty clearly in the crosshairs of this paragraph? Matthew? Um, I wouldn't add significantly more. I would just say that, I mean, one of the topics that's going to be coming up here, of course, is is the socialism um, focus that, that is in this encyclical. And as a bit of a background to that is the, um, the revolutions of a few decades earlier throughout Europe. Um, I mean, the, the overthrow of the monarchy in France, uh, these kind of things. So I think when he's talking a little bit about kind of the conflict now raging, there's also fear or an awareness of the possibility that this kind of revolution might break out in 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 physical violence again so maybe not the new thing but maybe the recognition of of something that might be repeating itself in the current time right yeah you've got you've got all sorts of ongoing revolutions and revolutions that are going to happen famously 20 years 30 years after this socialism i, I mean as you can see from even a cursory reading of uh, of the third way uh marxist socialism is a real threat uh in in the world of of leo's europe and and i mean it it's important to to think about pope leo was born at the very beginning of the 19th century he's the longest lived pope in office pope benedict is older than him Pope Emeritus Benedict is older than him, but he wasn't older than him when he uh, stepped down from the office. So Pope Leo is the oldest man to be Pope. Um, he's also the first Pope to ever be videotaped. Uh, so, I mean, r- really... Interesting. Yeah, the, the stuff we think of as modern technology is just happening, and Pope Leo is old enough to remember a very, very different world. Uh, and probably, frankly, to feel more comfortable in that earlier world. And I, I, I think you, I think that definitely serves as the background here to, to the third way. I mean, the, the Industrial Revolution has has overturned much of traditional European life, and, and Pope Leo recognizes, quite to his credit, that something needs to be said about this, that, that the the ways that people have kind of laid out to live in this new world are largely unchristian ways, uh, be it laissez-faire capitalism or be it Marxist socialism. And so Pope Leo wants to uh, wants to come out with what what's usually called a third way. And in fact, the, the book I ra- read Rerum Novarum from is a um, compilation of writings on this this distinctly Catholic economic system called distributism. And that, um, that, that book is called the third way it's got, you know, it's not really much of an anthology. It's got Rerum Novarum and then three semi distributist Chesterton books, but it was a, a relatively inexpensive way to get Rerum Novarum. If you don't want to read it online. Um, I don't like to read online if I don't have to. 
Anyway, yeah. this is an important text, the Ur text in a lot of ways, for that weird system called distributism. Pope Leo does not use that word himself. Uh, I think it's probably going to be helpful to define distributism apophatically as neither the first way capitalism nor the second way socialism. So let's talk about um, let's talk about the critiques, and I've divided them up based on country. Matthew, you live in the socialist utopia that is Canada, <laughs> so I'm going to let you talk about his critique of 19th century socialism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure we'd quite. Uh call ourselves a utopia. I have no idea what your personal politics are, by the way, uh, Matthew, <laughs> but I, I, I no, think no, no, no. you're at least, you're at least socialist adjacent compared to us. Uh, just, just based on where you live, I suspect. Mm -hmm. well, I think, I think Canadians in general, even conservatives, and I probably consider myself politically somewhat conservative, um, although not necessarily a party conservative, I'll put it that way. But uh, Canadian conservatives in general tend to approve of certain things that would probably appear socialist to, to our friends in the United States. You know, uh, and that was my experience in Minnesota as well, Matthew, that Minnesotan conservatives tend to be very common good focused in a way that conservatives in Georgia, where I live now, just are not. I think there must be some sort of Scandinavian thing deep in their blood that pushes them toward that. But that's a... that. Or maybe just as you go further north on this continent, um, you're you're more open to that sort of thing. I don't know. Yeah. As for the uh, the critiques of um, socialism that Pope Leo's making in in this text, um, I mean, it really boils down to um, the criticism of of doing away with private property in favor of possessions being owned by the community to be administered by the state or or by municipal bodies. Um, Leo sees this as having three major negative effects, and I'll go through all three of them. Um, first, he says it would it robs the lawful possessor of, of their rightful possessions. Um, second, it distorts the functions of the state. And third, it creates this utter confusion in the community. So looking at the first one there, where he, where he talks about socialism robbing the lawful possessor, um, we might say that Leo's basic concern here is that banning private property kind of diminishes what it means to be human in the first place. Um, he, he notes that the, the impelling reason and motive for working is to obtain property, which a person may then use in whatever way they please. Um, so, for example, a person might choose to use their wages in ways that improve their position, for example, by uh, buying land. Um, and in that sense, work becomes meaningful because it becomes a method to achieve a greater end. It also represents an expression of man's innate uh, natural desire to be master of their own acts, to set their own course. Um, and, and to be clear, Leo explains that, you know, there are boundaries to that desire uh, to set your own way, uh, specifically the boundaries provided by Christian faith and the need to, to love our neighbors. But... Um, Going back just to the idea of private ownership, he, he criticizes socialism because uh, by stripping private ownership away, he basically says it's stripping the values which are inherent in work. If all things are owned by the community as socialism dictates, then these things will be bestowed according to the community's rather than the individual's desires. In that sense, work can become meaningful meaningless because you can only do what you're told to do and you only receive what the community deems appropriate for you and you lose the personal freedom to um, 
to work as you wish and to to use the the fruits of your work in ways that um, benefit you. Um, he has other criticisms here too, uh, built in the idea that individual ownership is itself a natural outworking of the biblical injunction to to work the land. The idea that individual ownership has been the practice of all ages. Um, the idea that individual ownership contributes to peace and tranquility by giving people things to work for and goals to work towards. And he, he cautions that really this desire to strip private possessions away is itself an outworking of the growth of this, uh, pardon me, is an outgrowth of the sin of envy, yeah. uh, an outgrowth of coveting the goods of our neighbours. Um, so that, that kind of is his immediate concern with the idea that socialism robs the lawful possessor of their lawful possessions. Um, but he says, as a second criticism, that socialism distorts the functions of the state. Um, this is particularly true in how it interferes with the rights of family, he says, um, because the family is a true society which is older than the state and uh, whose rights are antecedent to those of the state. The family uh, is, is, is meant to, uh, pardon me, private ownership allows parents the ability to provide for the needs of their children. And this can only really be done through private ownership of productive property, he says. And uh, it, it's not right, he says, for the state to interfere in that kind of family dynamic. The state, he says, should interfere as little as possible in the workings, in the workings of the children. Uh, Pardon me. The state should interfere as little as possible in the inner workings of the family, except in cases where the state uh, needs to to correct abuses, where the, where the family is failing to fulfill its own unique obligations by providing necessities for its members, for example. And so by by raising uh, the state over the parent and allowing the state to interfere in the work of the family and to strip the family of the things it is that the parents have uh, worked for to, to gain for that family, to look after them, um, the state oversteps itself in a socialist context, he thinks. Finally, as his third criticism, Leo says that socialism creates utter confusion in the community. And by that, he has kind of a, a whole host of concerns in mind. And some of them touch on things we've already said, but um, he, he puts it this way, just kind of in summary. He says, by by stripping um, private possession, he says, the door would be open to envy, to mutual invective, and to discord. The sources of wealth themselves run dry, for no one has any interest in exerting his talents or industry. And he says the idea, uh, the ideal of equality, uh, is instead instead becomes the leveling down of all to a, a like condition of misery and degradation. So for these three reasons, robbing people of what they would otherwise lawfully own for overstating the role and responsibility of the state and for sowing confusion and discord in the wider community, he says we have to reject social socialism. But even uh, though he's saying that, I think he would define the problems in the current economic system, uh, namely the disparity between employers and the working class, in terms very similar to that of, of socialists. So he's basically agreeing with their assessment of the problem, but he thinks they're attempt to answer that problem is where it's going off the rails. Yeah, I think, I think that's, uh, I think that's accurate. What would you, uh, what would you add to that, Grubbs? 
that's you know that that's hitting with more organization uh, the points that I would have that I would have brought up. Um, just though to to comment on on that last that last comment that he's you know largely supporting their their uh, their critiques um, while critiquing their solutions. Um, I think it's it's because he he always has a larger a larger view than uh, than those those than those other perspectives, namely that he is he has uh, in view a world in which the ultimate great problem is not economic disparities right. or the abuse of laboring classes. That is one evidence of larger imbalances and the rectifying of those evils is one part of a larger vision of good um and so because uh because he has many goods that are part of his of of this larger vision he's trying to um you know sort of inculcate and defend because he's got this larger many goods within that larger vision um he's able to uh He's able to articulate the ways that uh, a, a, a limited solution from a limited diagnosis of the problems ends up encroaching upon these other goods uh, in ways that he considers, you know, sort of worse than the worse than the evil itself in some ways. He also takes um, takes issue with a, a, a pretty central piece of Marxist ideology. It's the first line of the first chapter of the Communist Manifesto, um, the the history of all oh, all hitherto existing societies, the history of of class conflict, I think is I think is how it's translated. Uh, and he doesn't agree with that. He does not think that the bourgeoisie and the proletariat are necessarily at odds. Um, and he thinks it's the job of the of the society. I won't say the state. It's the job of the society to inculcate fraternity. Even if even if there's not absolute equality, which of, of course there cannot be in in Poblia's view, there's n- there's never going to be right. absolute equality. But what you can have is fraternity, where the 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 various groups of society are not at odds with each other, or, or not you know dramatically at odds with each other. Yeah. Is it safe to say that the socialism he's critiquing is not what we would today call? Democratic socialism, the, the the economic system of Northern Europe or Canada or wherever. Do you think that's fair? That really, what he's the social, the quote unquote socialism he's critiquing is really communism. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the idea of, I mean, his primary concern is this question of of private ownership versus public ownership of, of all possessions. And those aren't things we typically see in what we would call socialist states today, but, and, at least not in the right. same way. Right. And, and yet you could you could imagine a, a, a person who's influenced by Leo being uncomfortable with uh, public education, for example. I, I don't I don't think that necessarily follows from Rerum Novarum, but you could you could see that as somehow the state taking control away from the family i guess if it were if you if you had to send your um send your children to state funded education i guess it would be and there are some countries i mean in europe where where that is kind of a, a requirement of of public education that you you can't opt out for yeah. homeschooling or something like that so i mean i i could understand how some people could still be concerned about that sort of thing 
while agreeing with uh, what Popolio is saying here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, what about capitalism, Grubbs? You're uh, you're as far right as they come. What uh, what moral and political <laughs> what moral and political <laughs> failings does Pope Leo point out in late Victorian capitalism? I should say I'm not sure I've ever heard you uh, come out full born in favor of capitalism. I think you probably are the most conservative of the, the main three people on this podcast, and probably Matthew as too. As far right as they come, as, yeah, like is. Sure. Is that now going on my Twitter, my Twitter profile? <laughs> as quote, as far right as they come, unquote. I don't mean Lord. it, folks. And David Grubbs never had another job. Yeah, I don't mean it. But anyway, yeah. What uh, what what <laughs> what failures yeah. does he point out in uh, in capitalism of the of the late nineteenth century? So, and the, the, he doesn't spend. At least, unless unless in reviewing it today, I, I I looked at I looked at, I read it last week and then I and then kind of reviewed it today. Unless there was just some some big chunk that I'm forgetting about, um, the the stuff that I focused on, um, just sort of descriptions of evils, um, the hard heartedness of employers, the greed of unchecked competition, um, rapacious usury. Uh, the hiring of labor and the conduct of trade being concentrated in the hands of comparatively few so that a small number of very rich men are able to lay upon the teeming masses of the laboring poor a yoke little better than that of slavery itself. So um, just – and that's just third paragraph in. Uh, hard-heartedness, uh, the greed am- animating unchecked competition, um, rapacious usury, and then – uh, such a disparity between who is being employed and who is employing that uh, you've got conditions that uh, you know he calls he calls little better than slavery itself. So that that's sort of his summary early on. Um, some of the comments that he makes later about socialism, particularly about uh, the relationship between the dignity of work. And its corollary in the ability to uh, to earn and then dispose of property. I mean, that, that's that's one of his arguments about socialism is that uh, by separating labor from the ownership, private labor, personal labor from the personal ownership and disposal of personal property. Um, what that does is it, it 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 breaks a relationship that is part of the dignity of labor, um, and that same dignity is something that can be offend that that the capitalist can also offend against. Um, so, uh, looking further on, um, uh, paragraph twenty, uh, this is when he's talking about what duties uh, the owner and employer has, but you can sort of flip that to see what the sin is. Um, not to look upon their work people as bondsmen. Um, they are reminded to, uh, according to natural reason and Christian philosophy, uh, to to know that working for gain is credible, creditable and not shameful to a man since it enables him to live an honorable livelihood. So the idea that um, along with along with having the the wealth that enables you to be the the owner and the employer to also have a contempt for those that you employ. Um, Leo says that's that that's unnatural. <laughs> it's 
it working it, working for gain is creditable, not shameful, right? Um, to misuse men as though they were things in the pursuit of gain or to value them solely for physical powers, this is truly shameful and inhumane. And then also, you know, keeping in mind um, what duties uh, the the working person has, duties to religion, duties to the good of their soul. So not putting your employees into positions that will um, directly or indirectly lead them towards uh, a, um, a crisis of conscience. Uh, not taxing the employee beyond their strength or employing them in work unsuited to their sex and age. Um, you know, and, and and you can see you know child labor laws downstream from this. Um, you know his great and principal duty, the employer's principal duty, is to give every one what is just. So flip all of those assertions, and that's what he sees in this world. Um, employer not treating their employees as if they are humans whose whose work is dignified, whose selves are dignified, who have who have important things in their lives that are more important than the work itself, um, valuing them merely as sort of replaceable assets, uh, and so valuing their labor and valuing their selves in that way. So that those are the those are the things that uh, I'm I'm picking up along the way, and some of these, like I said, um, I th- I, th- I think are very similar to um, his critiques of socialism in that both lose sight of the individual dignity of the particular person by viewing them as a collective in a way that uh, in a way that obscures some vital aspect of that personhood. Mass society, uh, as it'll be later called. Yeah. Yeah. Matthew, would you add anything to that? I think David's covered it pretty well. I, I mean, there's a particular passage I really liked where he's describing, um, describing really a specific example of how capitalism can go wrong or has gone wrong. Um, at this period of time, and that's the idea where where employers kind of hide behind this idea that workers have entered into their into, entered into their employment freely and willingly. Yes, that's section um, forty three. Ex- yeah, accepting kind of how little they're being paid, um, including payment that's below what anyone could really consider a living wage. And 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 he writes this this particular sentence or a couple sentences, which I think really describe the problem well. He says. Wages ought not to be insufficient to support a frugal and well-behaved wage earner. If through necessity or fear of a worse evil, the workman accepts harder conditions because an employer or contractor will afford him no better, he is made the victim of force and injustice. And I just think that's a wonderful description and a wonderful dismantling of of this idea that, well, they entered into this willingly. It's it's their own fault if they are accepting this. They they chose it. But if they have no choice, then it's the employer who's at fault, not the worker. They're doing the best they can with with a very difficult situation. Yeah, to to me, that's the section where he sounds the most against like what we would call libertarianism, 
So distributism, um, I'll, I'll just take a, a sidetrack here and, and define it briefly. Um, distributism tends to say that the means of production, rather than being given to the few, as, as in, um, as in laissez-faire capitalism, or given to the state, as in, uh, as in Marxist socialism, this, the, the means of production should be spread out as widely as possible so that everyone owns. So ownership is good, private property is a natural right, and as many people should be able to do that as possible um, rather than it being clustered in the hands of a few or removed from everyone. I would say that that's the kind of foundational principle of distributism it you know and there's there's lots of different forms of it people have been talking about it for more than a century now so there, there's all sorts of internecine disagreements about it but i think that's what pope leo is is proposing here and to some extent that's what chesterton and Hollier belloc pick up uh a few decades later to me What's most striking in Rerum Novarum is its treatment of unions, because Leo is very clearly very in favor of unions. Uh, unions have steadily decreased in power in American society for the past half century. I'm not sure where they stand in Canada. Uh, what does Leo think we're missing in letting go of the union? Well, I mean... Leo kind of envisions unions and, and similar associations as an important method of drawing the working class and employers together, uh, kind of that fraternity that we've spoken about already, um, and and through them uh, to really create a medium for fair and honest dialogue between worker and employer, um, as well as to ensure support of, of the most vulnerable among workers. Um, I think Leo's careful to note that there are limits to the goods of of unions. Um, he says that they could ultimately be destructive to faith if they're led by ideologues who, who oppose Christianity, for example. But in general, he thinks that they're effective and important in making sure the needs of working class people are not ignored by employers. Um, and I think the result of, of this kind of union dialogue with employers is, is pretty clear. I mean, better working conditions for workers, ensuring a livelihood which allows workers not only to support themselves, but to support a family, the ability for workers to accrue capital and thus better their situations long term. And Leo also sees unions as potentially being um, potentially providing a safety net for injured workers or elderly workers and so forth. Um, that noise, some of those kind of safety net things have been adopted at the governmental level today. I think of things like government regulation of safe working conditions, mm -hmm. uh, worker co worker compensation laws, social security programs in the states or, or Canada's uh, old age security and pension plans. Uh, so I, 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 you could argue that certain historic aspects of the work of unions continues today, even despite the decline of union, unions themselves, although it has been, again, removed from the people and, and brought to the level of the state. But I think the decline of unions is, is felt in different ways today. I'm not an economist, which is probably clear. <laughs> but I, I, as I understand it, the decline of unions has been tied to increased wage inequality, to wage stagnation in some industries and problems of this kind, or even the pr proliferation of, of minimum wage work, um, which could be said uh, or, or has been argued to be a consequence of the reduced role unions play in North America today. And of course, I think the lack of direct 
equal conversation between workers and employers has to inevitably decline in a world with fewer unions. Um, to be clear, in Canada, I, th I think we still have a fairly large unionized workforce. I think about a third of all workers would belong to some sort of union. But while certain types of work retain that kind of large union presence, like government, medical work, education, these kind of things, um, other types of work have declined significantly, especially in blue collar work. And it's in that kind of physical labor where unions have historically been particularly important. And it's it's where Pope Leo, I mean, it's the it's the working class, it's the 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 lower wage worker who he thinks the state has to look out for. And if the state mm -hmm. won't, you need the unions to do so. Yeah. So it's not the yeah. not the people who are doing well who need this stuff. It's it's the it's the people who are being taken advantage of, and that's that's almost always going to be people who who work either with their hands or work low skilled jobs. And it's and it's in these places where I think we see especially the de the decline of unions, unfortunately. Uh, but I, if I understand correctly, the United States has had a much more precipitous decline in in unions and unionized work. Is, is that true? Would you say, or and what would what would Pope Leo have to say about the effects of that loss uh, in an American context? I am also not an economist, nor am I a historian of unions, nor have I belonged to a union. But that is certainly a narrative that gets um, that gets repeated a lot, that the unions have increasingly lost their power since their heyday in the middle of the last century. And, and that that's one of the reasons for the rising gap between the very rich and the rest of us. And, and certainly it, it, the, the, the bad thing is the unions that get a lot of attention tend to be unions that people don't have a lot of respect for. And I'm thinking in particular of police unions, which people see rightly or wrongly as protecting crooked cops and teachers unions, which have gotten a lot of bad press in the last year or two. Um, especially since the coronavirus started, you know, a lot of the teachers unions in Chicago, for example, are saying that they're not going to let people go back until um, until essentially coronavirus has been eradicated, which is, you know, probably not a reasonable thing to say. And then the, the New York teachers union has been famously protective of teachers who aren't good at their jobs and aren't interested in being good at their jobs and just want to collect a salary. So, I, I mean, yeah, it's 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 like the unions that are there to protect people have declined in power, and the ones that have maintained their power have at least been perceived. I'm not on the inside, so I don't really know, but they, they've been perceived as being vicious rather than virtuous. What do you think, David? The who's who's as as right wing as he could possibly That's be? Right, yeah, you must hate unions. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, d I don't come from a family in which uh, association association with a union was something that was really talked about. Mm -hmm. um, Me neither. Uh, I th there. I don't know if there was such a thing. My my grandfather and my uncle were were railroad men. There was probably something. I would be shocked um, if there weren't. That, yeah, exactly. That's 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 one of those. Um, one of those industry industries that had very likely um, had those structures for for a very long time, um, but you know my dad was not in one, so so I didn't really grow up knowing knowing much about it. Um, most of what I knew about unions, you know, sort of coming up 
was the fact that they always seemed to be backing the fellow that I was voting against. Right. <laughs> and so um, a big a big chunk of the discourse about unions in uh, you know amongst conservative American folk is the ways that they uh, function as as you know funding for uh, funding for political parties for political campaigns um, that may not necessarily reflect the will of the individual uh, person who in some states uh, has to be part of the union in order to work within the industry and has to pay dues as part of uh, you know as part as part of it you right know, and sometimes those dues go to pay a union head who has nothing to do with the industry at hand who's not from the area and is just kind of bust in to manage the union. And that, that seems like a problem to me. And it doesn't seem at all like what Publio was saying. Well, I mean, I think what it, the, the thing, though, is to, to consider is that um, unions, like government, like any other sort of uh, any other sort of organized solution to a problem, um, because it, it involves uh, an accrual of of power and influence and resources um, is a place where opportunists want to nest. Right, right. <laughs> so you know, I, it, to to say this was you know the, this 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 form of society or this particular uh, society, this particular union was organized for these noble reasons and is responsible for these noble goods. Um, you could say exactly the same thing about the history of hospitals or any number of other institutions that um, have at different points in time also become places where you know opportunists, people who want to cash a fat check without doing a whole lot um, or people who want to steer those resources towards other ends um, that want to want to uh, want to land um, I mean heck we're Christians I your you know have there ever been leaders within our respective churches who have used their positions for power and influence and wealth in ways that were not legitimate? Well, not the Catholic Church, no. <laughs> <laughs> They're not all as good as Pope Leo, as it turns out. But, I mean, yeah. the thing about that, David... Yeah, and, and the Lutheran is like... But the thing about that is that is that Pope Leo has an answer. Um, for your bad unions, which is the solution is not to eliminate unions and leave the, the working man, you know, up to the whims of the bosses. It's to have good unions. <laughs> so yeah, if there's yeah. bad unions, the thing to do is to have a good one rather than. Um, and, and he doesn't give a whole lot of uh, specifics about how they should be organized and things like that. This is this is much more here are the broad outlines and you know there's an accept there's a there's a range of acceptable ways to run things. Make sure you're within that. But yeah, well, I, I think that becomes yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Matthew. <laughs> I was just going to say I think that becomes to some to some extent the problem because as you guys said you can't you can't really choose the union you're part of. A lot of these jobs by virtue of wanting to join this company you have to join this union. And uh, in my experience, I mean, as you guys are saying, unions often 
feel more like political agencies than than groups that are really working with the employer to ensure good wages and and, and uh, good working conditions. I think to some extent, I wonder whether the growth of unions into these national or international organizations has really limited their effectiveness on the local scene. I suspect because in my true, experience, yeah. in my experience, many members of their of existing unions have little direct interaction with the union themselves, which is supposedly representing their interests at a price. So, so. I, yeah. you know, I, there, there's been one time in my adult life when I really wished I had belonged to a union and I've always been kind of generally pro union, but, um, at the college I worked at, I, there was a, there was a rule that you had to have eight students in your class or it wouldn't make, um, which seems like an absurd rule anyway in a school of 600 people, but they applied it both to full professors who were making 50 to a hundred thousand dollars a year and to adjuncts who were making like, oh, I don't know, $2,000 a class. I don't think it was even $2,000 a class. I think it was $1,300 a class. So one semester, this poor guy is an adjunct. One of his classes only had seven people, and they canceled it. And I thought, we need a union to protect him. Because if we all got together and said, hey, we're not teaching next semester unless you let that class with seven students run for this guy for $1,300, um, they would have had to give in, right? I mean that, that that would have been that would have been virtuous collective action that wouldn't have been run by some sort of outside firm. It wouldn't have been based on envy of the bosses, which is uh, you know one of the things bad unions do in in Leah's uh, in in Leah's reckoning of it. It would have it would have been it would have been something that came from the ground up to protect the weakest people in the faculty. And, you know, maybe I should have just said, I'm not going to teach if you don't run that class and I'm, I'm too big of a coward to do it. But the whole point of a union is you have a critical mass and they can't fire all of you. You know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of thing. On the local scene, unions make sense. But it's, it's these, as you say, these outside firms that it starts to become... It, it might not be what exactly Pope Leo is talking about here. Yeah, I agree with that. Well, Pope Leo also says that it's not no employers, it's good employers. And it's not no government, it's good government. That's right. So, so he, there's several different institutions that he has at play here. None of them, he, there are, there are no institutions that he rejects as the the source of the problem, right. but rather breakdowns in uh, relationships between the institutions, uh, corruption of the original good that the institution was meant to um, to to defend or to produce. Um, so, so for him, the the sort of analysis that would say the problem is those guys um, is is facile and you know again that that's you know i'm 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 not necessarily you know pointing to any one person's um inst- any one person's thing but but he would any any one person's you know assessment of capitalism or socialism or whatever but but to just say unions are bad no unions is to leave out what a good union is for and to say employers are bad no more employers is to leave out 
the good of what someone who has managed to accrue capital can do in order to make the opportunity for employment of others. Right. And we, and we, we all know that there are virtuous employers. Like there are, there are people who take care of their employees, just like there are virtuous landlords, you know? Yeah. My, uh, in, in Birmingham, Alabama, where I'm from, uh, there is a, a cast iron company, a SIPCO. Um, I don't know, where what they are now um i don't know how things work now but uh when uh, i i remember learning that the the if i remember rightly the fellow who founded this foundry it's a cast iron company um left it in his will to the people who worked at the company very popular and yes and uh again i don't remember how it works now but everybody, every everyone who was in that industry locally wanted to work there because they based they had they had their they had their own health care they had everything mm-hmm. you know you know you you got you know everyone had a cut in stock you know and you know I, I knew some I knew something about it because for a while uh, the hospital that my dad works at uh, works at as a uh, vocational um, kind of therapist uh, was working at and an outpatient clinic at the Asipco plant um, with uh, with their workers when you know they needed kind of physical rehabilitation after uh, after injuries. So, you know, that, I, I remember hearing about that and thinking that's really cool. Or you know, I, I've heard that In and Out, the uh, the California Burger Company, I, I, I've heard that their employees own stock in the company, even like the low level. Employees. I'm not sure. I, I can't vouch for that. I don't know, but I've heard that. And you think of there are other multinational corporations that are, are pretty good to the people on the ground level. I've always heard Chick-fil-A, for example, takes care of its people. Um, and the thing that amazes me about Chick-fil-A, not to not to stump too hard for them, but I do live in Atlanta, um, is that they uh, <laughs> everybody who works for Chick-fil-A corporate has to spend at least one day a year working as a working stiff in one of the restaurants. And it, it's, it seems to me that that's a good way to, to increase the fraternity between those two groups in bringing them together like that. You, you don't get to, you don't get to not know what it's like. Now, again, I, I, I don't know everything that goes on at Chick-fil-A. I'm sure they could be a more ethical company than they are, but you know, in terms of multinational corporations, you know, that's a good policy at least. I don't know. I, I I feel weird. I one of the one of the things about following Leo Pope Leo is that when you um, any remark you make, you're worried that either a socialist or a laissez-faire capitalist is going to get mad at you for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he's he's pretty even-handed in his eye poking. Um, on the other hand. Uh, the idea that institutions valued by both and goods valued by both have a have a proper place is is also there. Yeah. So he he's going to poke everybody in the eye and he's going to shake their hand with the other hand. Now would be a good time for everybody to go look at a picture of Pope Leo who has like the most good-natured face in human history. <laughs> I guess it'll probably be the album art. 
Rear of Navarum is 130 years old this year, and obviously the world has changed really substantially in those intervening 13 decades. I should point out there's a number of later encyclicals by later popes that expand on it. We're not talking about any of those. But I thought here at the end it might be helpful if we tried to tackle some hot-button economic issues uh, using Rerum Navarum as a guide. So I've got a few written here. Uh, we'll just spend, I don't know, 10 minutes and go through as many of them as we can. And uh, whatever we can't hit, we we won't hit. So let's start with uh, with one that's that's come up a lot uh, in in my social media feeds the last few months, uh, which is a, a fifteen dollar minimum wage, or to that we might add like a universal basic income. What do you think we could say about those propositions using rerum novarum as our god? I think that. Uh... Uh, in this encyclical, Leo Leo's careful to note that uh, I think the phrase is circumstances, times, and localities differ so widely. Um, and when he's criticizing the potential for state involvement in the things, and to to some extent, I think then that well, I think I think part of the problem there is that uh, it it doesn't take into account differences in cost of living and business income. So it, it's ultimately, I think, doing it on a national level, it would 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 disadvantage certain uh, businesses and uh, potentially lead them to close or, or fire existing employees. I, I think that there's something to be said for minimum wages, but they should be tied to a local cost of living on perhaps a state level rather than a national. And yeah, and I, I think I think Pope Leo would go along with that. There's a there's a principle in Catholic social teaching called subsidiarity, which says that things should be done at the lowest level that they can be done effectively. And I, I think there's certainly a good argument to make that the um, that the minimum wage, because just because it, it fifteen dollars an hour covers so much in different parts of the country, different even parts of a, a given state, that it, it it's kind of absurd to have an overall uh, minimum wage rather than have that run by local municipalities or at least by the states. So I, I, I think I think there's a good subsidiarity argument for what you what you just said, Matthew. What about uh, yeah. you, what about the UBI though? So there are different articulations of this, and I, I can't say that I've 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 necessarily dug down into into any of them in particular so you know if if you're listening you know dear listener and and you have one of these that is your favorite and what i say doesn't you know jive with the th- with you know the pony that you back um i'm sorry I, I i don't know about your pony and your pony may be awesome um but to the extent that an income is not tied to work may fall afoul of what Leo says about um, breaking uh, about br- severing the the uh, the connection between work and uh, and income and property. Um, so it may it may demotivate in the way that he talks about with socialism. Right. Um, however, one thing that I have heard is that you know, well, you know, this this no one's meant to live on it. It's it's meant to be some kind of a base level that would then free you up to pursue a vocation that that aligns more with your gifts and talents and vision. Um, you know, so that so that someone who who wants to give themselves to a 
uh, a vocation that is historically not as lucrative um, is uh, called upon less to sort of sacrifice uh, their life upon that altar, as it were. Um, and as one who has spent most of his working career sacrificing upon that altar, <laughs> um, I, I can I can kind of see that perspective um, that it, it 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 might free someone up to not be alienated from their labor by the fact that it's so that it's not lucrative at all. Yeah, um, I, I I think that's dead on. That's exactly what I would have said, Matthew. In Canada, I know there's been a couple of arguments inside like the fiscal conservative side of things where they've actually argued that the move towards a universal basic income might in the end be more cost effective than than the various different kind of social net uh social nets that we have in canada because it would eliminate a lot of of the bureaucratic reduplication and things and just ensure that a lot of vulnerable people get support um in 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 a lot easier way so i i i Again, I'm not an economist, so I couldn't say whether that's true or not. But I, I see how there could be some arguments for universal basic income. Your your mm-hmm. fiscal conservatives are arguing for UBI. I've got to move to Canada. Can you sponsor me? <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I want to be clear. It's not it's not like a big live discussion. But I've read some some papers and and uh, know that there are some conservative voices out there who've argued that this would be a fiscally conservative good move um, for Canada. I don't think it has popular support in conservatism, unfortunately. How about, um, now here's a non-issue for our friends from the charmed North. Um, what, what about single-payer health care, which I can't believe we don't have yet, frankly. And I'm, I'm sorry to... Uh... I'm I'm sorry to to uh, be too down on on this country, but it it just seems like such a strange thing that <laughs> we don't have it. Uh, is there a is there a distributist argument to make for universal healthcare, single payer healthcare? I mean, can I argue the contra? Yeah, go for it. I think subsidiarity would 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 push very very hard um, against there being a single a single payer that is sort of going back up to a direct government intervention. Um, the uh, f- passage or paragraph 45, in order to supersede undue interference on the part of the state, especially as circumstances, times, and localities differ widely, it is as advisable that recourse be had to societies or boards such as we shall mention presently. And then he goes on to talk about that kind of benefit society model or to some other mode of safeguarding the interest of wage earners, the state being appealed to should circumstances require for sanction and protection of those organizations that are not the government. Um, you know, Later on in paragraph 48, associations and organizations that afford opportune aid to those who are in distress draw the two classes more closely together. So it's, it's very specifically organized by the working classes and in in uh, connection with, in harmony with, and in funded by the the affluent classes. Um, among these many enumerated, uh, maybe enumerated societies for mutual help, various benevolent foundations established by private persons, um, and and so forth. Like the the idea that the government would step in and say, I'm just going to positively solve all of this is, 
kind of the opposite of what he presents as the solution. Grubb's coming in hot with his far right ideology. Uh, Leo's <laughs> far right ideology. <laughs> but I mean, his his argument is, you know, again, the idea that the people who are closer to the situation know more like what a good solution in that situation looks like. Um, you know, if if a universal if a universal minimum wage doesn't make sense, you know, in terms of variations of 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 locality and so forth, why would a universal medical plan make sense? It's helpful from my perspective. I mean, we don't tend to talk about single payer health care because it's it's just not the way we talk about it in Canada. We talk about public health care, but it comes down to the same kind of thing, obviously. Um, it's worth noting that in Canada, Healthcare, while it's a single payer system across the country, the actual provision of healthcare is done at the provincial level, um, so the, the equivalent of the state level. So there still is an awareness of the distinction of, of locale and, and things of that nature. But uh, I think <laughs> I think certain kinds of um, well, I mean. Just the idea that, you know, a Canadian is able to access health care at no personal cost um, just seems to me so obviously good. Uh, no, nobody goes into, into bankruptcy because of medical debts. Yeah, I, 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 Canadians have a hard time reading those kind of news stories from the States, and we, we don't really get where the argument comes from against it. Um, uh, to be clear, I mean, we've we've been doing this for decades now without any real problems uh, of that kind. But I mean, I just think of the very, very uh, most vulnerable. I mean, if a homeless man walks into a hospital in Canada, he'll get the same treatment that the doctor working in that hospital would have gotten if he'd walked in. And that to me just seems such an obvious good that I have trouble, I have trouble following arguments yeah. against it. I, I, I think there's think... a subsidiarity argument for public health care, single payer health care, however you, socialist medicine, however you want to put it, in that something gets kicked up further if it can't be done effectively at a lower level. And I, I think there's an argument to be made that maybe, um, maybe it can't be done better at a local level. It certainly doesn't seem to be done terribly well the way we're currently doing it with uh with private insurers and everybody's got their own plan um i, I don't know i don't know if maybe you want to do it at a state level or a city level even but i, I don't see how the private system is working for most people but that the that, that private system also is not what leo's talking about yeah, he's right. talking. He's yeah. talking about the sorts of uh, mutual aid societies that do exist. So, rather than having insurance, you um, you get letters from other people in the uh, mutual aid society, and you pay their bills when you can afford to pay them, and they pay yours when they can afford to pay them. Those those places exist. And one thing that's interesting to me is I had a, a former student who um, whose family belonged to that, except for her father who couldn't because he had diabetes and they couldn't afford to, they couldn't afford to pay his bills. And in fact, he drove all the way to Canada to buy his insulin because the insulin here is so expensive. Uh, and in Canada, I guess it's, uh, I guess it's not. So I, I, I agree. Like those, those societies are good. 
Um, but I, I think for the, for the people who, who really have long-term problems for people like me and you, maybe no big deal, but for, for people who need daily medicine or, um, you know, frequent surgeries or, uh, other things of that nature, I, 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 I don't know that the mutual aid society is going to be the solution. All right. Well, I mean, Leo's not around for you to explain that to him. You know, <laughs> I, I, like he's listening. Arguing. Don't worry. Yeah, I'm not arguing which is better. Like, let's make that. Oh, I know you're not. I'm I'm arguing what flows most naturally from this. And and I think a, um, I I think he's very leery of bringing the state in. I think that's accurate. Which Mm -hmm. makes a whole heck of a lot of sense in late 19th century Europe, in which um, a revolutionary politics that is aimed at helping. Uh, helping the lower classes tends to also have an anti-clerical bent. Right. Right. And so saying, let, let us overturn, um, overturn the systems in order to empower governments that have these sorts of goals is also something that he, as, you know, a clerical sort of person, <laughs> you know, so, so yeah, kind of a I, clerical person. Yeah. The Pope, you know, you know, I, I think what you'll find David on is on the that side as it were distributists tend to be equally suspicious of big government and big business. And mm-hmm. unfortunately in the healthcare debate, those are your choices. Yeah. Well, you know, I, the, the the fact that all we have are bad choices doesn't mean that the choices are great. No, that's true. I mean, in, in lesser of two evils, all that. I I am much less skeptical of uh, of single payer healthcare than I think you are, David. I think we've had this conversation before in private. Well, I mean, we don't need to get in. We don't need to get into all the reasons you're skeptical. We can save that yeah. for another episode because we're running <laughs> or, or not because that's fun too. <laughs> Our listeners can write David Grubbs personally and ask him about his skepticism toward single payer healthcare. Woohoo! And he may or may not answer you. Yeah. Well, gosh, Being do you guys think we could do the gig economy in two minutes? Because I really, this is, I, I really want to talk about this, <laughs> but we're running out of time. We'll go for it, Michael. The gig economy is, you know, people, people working multiple jobs, working for Uber, supposedly to have more freedom. But really, I don't know that you do have much more freedom and you don't make much more money and you don't actually own the means of production as you might appear to when you work for Uber. The means of production are not your car. The means of production are the app that connects people to your car. So I I personally think Leo would be quite skeptical of the gig economy, although there are periodic conservative attempts to tie distributism to to the gig economy, to Uber in particular, uh, and I'm not very convinced by them. On the other hand, if you're thinking like a, a system like Patreon, which every podcast but ours uh, uses, and I, we're going to have one eventually, I think, uh, I think Patreon probably is closer to a distributist model. Um, so depending on what you mean by the gig economy, I think there's there's an argument to be made for it from a Leonian, Leonine perspective and an argument to be made against it. What do you guys think? Yes. <laughs> Sounds fair to me. <laughs> well, the idea that um, there would be a tool for micro-scale, agile deployment of capital to 
enable again micro local scale labor that that feels like subsidiarity at its subsidiarityist right although it must be pointed out that is not how uber works what's happening with uber i'm not talking about okay. uber. I'm talking about <laughs> yeah 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 and and you can imagine a, a version of uber that's that's actually owned by the people driving it um, and that it, that is built on subsidiarity, but Uber as it stands, that ain't it. Uh, I, you know, the only the only company I hate more than Uber is Airbnb. I think Airbnb is just a blight on. Um, you know, we we live in a world with hundreds of housing crises, and people are buying apartments just to rent them out for Airbnb. Kiss my butt. I went to I went to Montreal. It's the only time I've ever stayed in an Airbnb. I went to Montreal and, and stayed in this one. We thought it was a guy's house, right? Like, because that's what it's supposed to be. But the guy had bought the whole building and was renting it out as Airbnb. And while we're there, all I'm reading about in the Montreal newspaper is the housing crisis in Montreal. I felt like I was part of the problem rather than part of the solution. So I'll never do that again. But it's not exactly the gig economy, but it's related. These tech companies, like they, they act like they're localist, right? Like the Airbnb seems like it's, oh, it's just a way for you to make a little extra money by renting out the room you're not using for the weekend. Don't be, don't believe it. Well, <laughs> uh, Rerum Navarum <laughs> is the, uh, the foundation of contemporary Catholic social teaching, but it's also one of the encyclicals that's most widely read by non-Catholics. Um, so as we head out, I'm interested to know what you two Protestants thought about its applicability beyond papism. Did you find this a pretty, uh, pretty reasonable read? Um, I don't know. It, I, it didn't seem like it. I'm not. I'm not saying that it didn't seem Roman Catholic. It just didn't seem exclusively that to me. I mean, besides biblical stuff and the citations of historical precedents. Um, the main moves that that might be identified as as Roman Catholic are citing the influence and the authority of the church um, in sort of speaking into moral matters of the society and politics. But I mean, Protestants have also not uh, Protestants have agreed on that, right? So that that's that's not necessarily something that's different. Um, he cites natural law as a source of political authority and family authority and something that informs um, the structures of economy. So he's not exactly grounding um, those aspects of, of his vision on something that is peculiarly Christian, much less peculiarly Roman Catholic. I mean, there is that big historical Roman Catholic precedent for benefit societies and fraternal organizations that operate under ecclesial authority. There's that. But I don't know that that's something that Protestants would disagree with on principle. Like, am, am I missing the thing in here that, that is supposed to be triggering my anti-papal gag reflex? No, I mean, it, he, he seems to think the church is necessary for an appropriately just society, which Nathan would probably be less okay with than you are <laughs> as, the, as the wannabe Anabaptist. Yeah, I, you know, I th there. I, I'm 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 American enough to be suspicious of establishment, but medievalist enough to, you know, recognize that that suspicion is a historical novelty that I probably need to 
um, also sort of hold at arm's length and wonder about. So, yeah. Matthew? Well, I mean, I take a, a pretty positive view of the encyclical. I Obviously, as we said, you know, Leo's proposition is that the only answer to some of these questions has to come from the church. And by that, he does mean Roman Catholicism and its specific intervention. But, I mean, his actual theological analysis of work and the plight of workers seems reasonably applicable across yeah. church traditions. Um, I like... I mean, when he's stressing the fall and its effect on work and, and um, how how um, we can't really expect to achieve a perfect society in this world. Um, but that doesn't mean we don't try to seek justice in the here and now. I mean, these are all, I think, very good lessons for us. There's um, one thing he says where he says, nothing is more useful than to look upon the world as it really is. And at the same time, to seek elsewhere for the solace to its troubles. So, I mean, while he's interested and concerned about real practical problems, he's also aware that ultimately the the solace for people who are in these kind of situations is to look to Christ, to look to the to the future um, bliss of heaven. Um, that's not the kind of thing you might hear a lot of people say today, but I think it's a very <laughs> Christian thing to say. And it's a uh, it's I don't know. I just I liked the encyclical. It's it's good. And uh I'm curious, actually, to see what some of the later popes have said building on this, because I, I gather there are additional encyclicals that have come out at various anniversaries, um, ex- extending kind of the lessons of this this kind of work. Yes, there there are. Maybe maybe we'll do an episode about uh, one or more of them later on down the road. But this is all we got time for today. Uh, thank you guys for talking about it with me and arguing and revealing your socialist and far-right views as the, uh, <laughs> the situation merits. Thank Matthew, you. what are we talking about next week? Oh, uh, yeah. Um, last week I mentioned briefly the Canadian author Sinclair Ross. And uh, for next week we're going to read one of his short stories, The Lamp at Noon, which is from 1968. And it's set in on a Saskatchewan farm, I think, in the midst of the Great Depression. It's quite a short piece, and it's available online, so readers shouldn't have any trouble finding it if they want to read it in advance. That's horrific. I look forward to it. In the meantime, you can get in touch with us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Our, our website is christianhumanist.org. Our Twitter is CH Radio Network. Uh, our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Uh, I'm Michael Farmer for David Grubbs, Matthew Block, and the absent Nathan Gilmore. Let your sins be strong, and let your faith be stronger.